Well, if you would, please open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Our passage for this morning, for the second week in a row, is 1 Corinthians 7, 25 through 40. And let's begin by reading this passage together. Again, that's 1 Corinthians 7, verses 25 through 40. The Apostle Paul writes, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she's not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with the world. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as, as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. I have a confession to make. <laughs> I've committed a very grave and uh, nearly unforgivable sin. Even worse, I did it knowingly. Willingly. This was a very intentional kind of sin. And do you know what it was? It's a, it's a very unusual sin. In fact, it's a sin that only pastors can commit, and they can only do it while they're standing in the pulpit. And I did it to you. I'm sorry, but I had to do it. Understand, I'm not asking for forgiveness. I would do it again. Are you ready to hear what it was? I preached a passage that I could have preached in one week, in two. Yes, it's terrible, right? I know. Uh, the, the sin of long-windedness. You're warned about it often in seminary. But I couldn't help myself, guys. I couldn't resist. I just had to preach the passage we're dealing with here this morning over two weeks instead of one. And of course, I, I kid, but I do it in order to draw your attention to a very intentional choice that I made with this week's passage. 
and for some very specific reasons. Once again, this is our second week in 1 Corinthians 7, 25 through 40. And while my original intent was to cover this passage over two weeks, it occurred to me as I was wrapping up last week's message that I probably could have done it in one. Generally speaking, that's a good choice. If you have the option of saying something in fewer words, that's typically the better route to go. You're only going to wear out your listeners' attention span otherwise, and that's only going to dull the force of an idea. Even further, I'm incredibly conscious of the fact that we've been in this same section of 1 Corinthians, which started all the way back in chapter 6, verse 12, for almost four months now. Taking October out of it, that means that we're on what is now our 11th message dealing with the relationship between sex and marriage. If you add that to the four messages we spent dealing with the man living with his stepmother in chapter 5 back in June, and the two messages dealing with the Corinthians' repentance from sins like sexual immorality, which occurred in the middle of chapter 6 back in July, then it means that this is now our 17th message touching upon the Christian and sex in at least some form or fashion all in the span of just five months. I would imagine you might be getting a little tired of the topic by now. And so with that in mind, I was considering just wrapping things up and moving on. The reason I didn't, however, is because I think Paul says something in this passage that's both, incre that's both incredibly helpful and, I think as well, somewhat difficult to understand. I know I certainly didn't get it at first. You know, I'll, I'll start researching these passages at least a couple of weeks in advance, and so I have time to really think about the passage and let it simmer. That's really just how my brain works. I can't just study a passage and go, oh, that's what it means, and go out and preach it. Not typically. I've got to let it sit on the back burner and stew for a while. And I really had a hard time getting this one at first. I could understand the basic idea that Paul was driving at, but I, I was still struggling with its application. Meaning, I, I could grasp the concept, but when I started to transfer it to some specific scenarios, it didn't seem as if the conclusions that I was coming to were consistent with the conclusions we find in other parts of the Scripture. And so I knew I didn't quite have the concept down just yet, even though I understood the theory behind it. In fact, even when I was writing the sermon for last week, there were still elements related to this concept that were becoming clearer and clearer in the process. Now, of course, that's with the advantage of having weeks to spend researching and meditating upon the passage. You only get like an hour uh, when I spring it to you on Sunday morning. So I figured that it's probably going to be the same way with you. If you're anything like me, then there were elements in last week's message that were insightful and eye-opening. I mean, Paul is providing us with some very helpful principles here in this passage. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you really get it just yet. You may understand the big picture at this point, but you don't necessarily grasp the nuance, perhaps, some of the finer details related to the proper application of this idea. And so even though we could have wrapped up this section of 1 Corinthians last week, I thought it would be a good idea to come back and look at this particular text one more week so that hopefully another swing of the hammer will drive the nail just a little bit deeper. 
So that being said, what is this passage about? What are we talking about here? Well, in a word, it's ambition. Spiritual ambition, to be specific. And what we're considering is how this kind of ambition is to be applied. The Corinthians, of course, were an incredibly ambitious people. They lived in an ambitious society, and they brought that ambition with them into the church. However, as I said last week, the problem isn't merely that they're ambitious. It's not the mere existence of ambition that's the problem. It's that they're ambitious for the wrong kinds of things, and they're seeking these ambitions out in the wrong kinds of ways. I shared this quote with you from Marcus Aurelius last week, where he says that a man's worth is no greater than the worth of his ambitions. And I explained that not only is he saying that a man is only going to be productive insofar as he has ambitions, but insofar as he has the right type of ambitions. A person who's not only motivated, but who's motivated to achieve something good, they will in turn produce something good. Conversely, a person who's motivated to achieve something worthless or even evil, they will in turn produce something worthless or even evil. The problem the Corinthians had is that they were ambitious for the praise of men. They were proud. And this pride in turn produced all kinds of divisions in the church. Now, they were Christians, so this was still a, a spiritual kind of pride. Essentially, they were attempting to demonstrate who among themselves was the most mature, the most advanced in Christ. So it's a competition rooted in their desire to be the best possible kind of Christian, even the most spiritual kind of Christian, but it's pride nonetheless. And it's produced a kind of factionalism within the church. We've seen one such expression of this factionalism in chapter 6 and 7. The Corinthians think that what makes one Christian better than another is what they know. That's not uncommon, uh, even in the church today. There are many Christians who confuse doctrinal specificity or adherence to a particular doctrinal system with maturity. And the Corinthians were no different. They They've even broken into these different camps based around whatever Christian teacher they think offers the most advanced or advantageous system of doctrine. How that's expressed here is with this division over how to handle human sexuality. At this point, I've said it so many times that you're probably sick of hearing it, but there appears to be these two camps. They both agree that the body is more or less bad or at least inconsequential since, at least in their mind, it's passing away. The way the one camp is interpreting this is to say, you know, it doesn't matter what you do with the body, uh, use it and abuse it, while the other camp is saying, no, this is precisely why we need to deny its cravings. Again, they're both acting as if they're especially spiritual people. And this is actually quite literal, by the way. Uh, they're attempting to act as if they have already transcended the body, as if they are, they are already purely spiritual beings. They just disagree with how that knowledge is to be applied, what it looks like. Now, of course, they're both wrong about the body, right? We've talked about this already. Paul corrects their understanding of the body in chapter 6 as he explains to the first camp that it does matter what you do with the body, since the resurrection points to the fact that the body has been redeemed by Christ. So the body is not meaningless. It has a purpose. It's to be used to honor Christ. But not only are they wrong about the body, but that error is leading them into some very wrong applications as well. 
The first camp, obviously, is wrong in that they think there's nothing necessarily all that bad about sexual immorality. They're thinking that since God is getting rid of the body, then he's not really going to care whether or not a person has sex or who they have sex with or when or how often, all of that. Again, that's wrong, Paul has pointed out, because Christ has redeemed the body. So God does care what you do with it. He wants you to use it in service to Christ. However, this second camp is wrong as well. Again, they're taking the opposite approach. They're saying that the best way to treat the body, the most spiritual thing to do, is to just deny its physical cravings, or at least deny it with respect to sex. They're telling people it's not good for a man to touch a woman. And they're even applying that within the context of marriage. They're telling married couples, stop having sex with each other. They're telling single Christians, don't get married, remain celibate. This is also wrong. Because while God does care about what the Christian does with the body, this is not the same thing as saying that all sex is inherently distasteful to him. It's not sex in general that God has a problem with, but sexual immorality. Meaning, as long as sex is occurring between one man and one woman under a marriage covenant, then it's fine. In fact, more than just being fine, Paul has pointed out it may even help the believer avoid sexual immorality. So this is wrong too. Just as it's wrong for the first camp to say all sex is fine, so also is it wrong for this second camp to say all sex is bad. Here in chapter 7, Paul is dealing exclusively with the second camp. This camp is thinking that in order for the Christian to be the most mature they can be, the most pleasing to God, the most spiritual, then they need to make this commitment to absolute celibacy. For some, this will require a change. They'll need to at least act as if they're not married, even though they are married. For others, it may require staying as they are. You know, if they're unmarried, for instance, and they'll need to remain unmarried. For still more, it's a little bit of a mixture of both. If they're engaged, for instance, then they're not married, but they may need to at least break the engagement off. Point being, they think that spiritual maturity is expressed in a particular kind of status, that status being celibacy, and that a Christian should do whatever is necessary to attain to that status. What Paul has been doing in this chapter is explain why that change in status is unnecessary while at the same time explaining that there is a sense in which there are some statuses that are still better or more preferable than others. To the first point, Paul explains that a change is unnecessary Because, again, there's nothing inherently wrong with sex, as long as it's set within the right context. If I could put it this way, this second camp is trying to fully dedicate themselves to Jesus through this act of celibacy. What Paul explains in verses 17 through 24 is that this kind of change is unnecessary because dedication is a matter of obedience, not status, and it's a matter of perspective, not status. Meaning it's not some mere external performance that God is looking for. There's no condition that a person can be in to become automatically pleasing to God, be that celibacy or circumcision, since what God is interested in is obedience, not mere ritual. To obey is better than sacrifice, Samuel told Saul, and to listen than the fat of rams. And that kind of obedience, it really comes down to how a person looks at their position in life. 
A free Christian is not necessarily more obedient to Christ than the slave, nor the single Christian than the married Christian, since it's not a sin to be a slave or to be married. It all has to do with a person's approach to these situations. You can have sinning single people and obedient married couples. You can have obedient freedmen and sinning slaves. What matters is what a person does with what God has entrusted to them, how they use it. The slave is free to obey Christ in their condition, just as the freedman is bound to obey Christ in theirs. It's all a matter of perspective. And in this respect, there is no advantage from one position to another. From God's perspective, they're all the same. They all can and should be used to glorify God. But that said, as far as the Christian is concerned, as far as what benefits them, there are some situations that are better than others. In what sense? We, well, we covered this last week. Some positions are better in the sense that they make the Christian's responsibility to be obedient to God easier than others. As we, again, we saw this all throughout last week's message. Paul comes to the, to the betrothed and he tells them, I want you to be free from anxieties. The, the husband is anxious both with how he will please his wife and how he will please the Lord. He says it's the same for the wife, and I would spare you all of this. I say this for your benefit, he says in verse 35, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion in the Lord. That's the big picture that we're supposed to be extracting from this passage. Verses 29 through 31, the Christian is supposed to have this eternal perspective that gives shape uh, to their ambitions in this life. They're supposed to be living in light of the coming of Christ, meaning their hope is not set on this world. They're to live as if they had no wives one way or the other, as if they had nothing to lament or even rejoice over in this world, as if they had no possession in it, either to buy or to sell. And this should mean that their chief ambition in life is to simply know and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. They're one day going to stand in judgment before him. It's like we saw recently in 2 Corinthians 5. It's then that they'll be rewarded for what they did in the flesh, whether good or evil, literally worthless, you'll recall. This means that their chief ambition in life is to simply know and serve him, to worship Jesus. And how does that ambition shape the kinds of decisions they make in life? Again, if a man's worth is only as great as the worth of his ambitions, meaning if his ambitions drive the kinds of things he does, then how is this particular ambition applied, this desire to be devoted to Christ? Paul says it's applied by doing what you can to free yourself from those obligations that will hinder your dedication to him. Now, again, that's not to say that the slave can't be completely and fully obedient to Jesus Christ in his slavery, nor that the married Christian cannot be obedient in their marriage. It just means that their job is going to be made a little bit harder because of the commitments they have going on in their life. The married man has to learn how to juggle two kinds of obligation, the obligation he has to his spouse and the obligation he has to his Lord. The single man has only one. Why bother with that kind of headache, Paul says? If what matters to God is obedience, not status, then why make that obedience any harder than it needs to be? 
Again, this is the first way that spiritual ambition ought to be applied. If the goal is not to distinguish oneself as superior to others, but instead to completely dedicate oneself to Christ, then the way that the spiritually ambitious should act is by doing whatever they can to free themselves from those distractions that are going to hinder their devotion to Jesus Christ. I believe believe the way I put it last week was like this. The spiritually ambitious seek to be free from anxieties. And again, that's not anxiety in a general sense, simply anything that makes you anxious, but anxiety in the sense of those things that distract and even hinder the Christian's devotion to Christ. And of course, I spent some time last week trying to explain what this looks like. I said that this isn't going to look just exactly the same for everyone. For instance, for the single man or woman who struggles with sexual temptation, Paul explains in this chapter that for them, this might mean marriage. Again, it's not just that the single man or woman is simply unable to control their lusts in their current condition. In fact, just a a little later in this same letter, Paul is going to write, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he says, No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So the, the single man or the single woman, they can control their desires, even outside of marriage. They, they must not change their position so far as God is concerned in order to be pleasing in this sense, because they can already be obedient just exactly where they are. But in their case, marriage might make their path to obedience easier. The anxieties associated with marriage would be less than the anxieties associated with singleness. And of course, I said that what's important is for you to pursue whatever is the optimal path of obedience for you. And again, that's not going to be the same for everyone. It comes down to one's abilities, one's spiritual strengths and weaknesses. So you need to pursue whatever is the easiest path to achieving your maximum dedication and devotion to Christ. So really what we have here, up through verse 35, is a kind of Mary and Martha situation. And I think you understand what I mean when I say that. Luke 10, Jesus comes and he stays at Martha's house. Mary is there with her. And as Martha is rushing around trying to be a good host, Mary is just simply sitting there at the feet of Jesus listening to his teaching. And Martha, of course, gets upset. She says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. To which Jesus answers, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This is how we as Christians can often think about our relationship with God. We can think about it sort of like Martha. We think that our job is to do something for God, which then naturally means that our situation is better or worse to the degree that we can accomplish something on his behalf. That's not the way that Paul frames all of this. It's like I said last week, the first of these two camps thinks that knowledge is demonstrated through self-gratification, the second camp through self-denial, and I think that between the two, Paul actually agrees with the first camp more. He doesn't agree with the conclusions they come to, he disagrees with the idea that sexual immorality doesn't matter, but he does agree with the general logic. The gospel does mean that we should think less in the sense of what is permissible and more in the sense of what is profitable. And this is why he avoids sexual immorality. There's no profit in it. There's nothing to gain in it. 
Paul's ambition is to know Christ. Like Mary, he wants not to do something for God, but rather to receive something from God. And that something that he's striving to receive is not anything earthly or worldly. It's Christ. He wants to see as much of Christ as he possibly can. And so he's telling the Corinthians, don't be anxious. Don't think that God is automatically, inherently pleased with self-denial. There's nothing inherently better about that. What God wants is for you to delight in Him, to enjoy Him. There's no sense in making that any harder than it has to be. So if you can, free yourself from these other anxieties. Again, I say this for your benefit, Paul says, not God's. This is instruction that's really about them, their comfort in Christ, their enjoyment. And as I said at the end of last week's message, I think this raises several significant questions. For example, doesn't this seem just a tad bit selfish? Paul says, stay, stay free from these other obligations because that will benefit you. <laughs> How's that compatible with what he says over in Philippians 2? When he says that we should, quote, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. He says, let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Here Paul says, do this for your own benefit. He's even encouraging singleness, a kind of intentional detachment from a covenantal commitment to another person to love and serve them, right? And he's discouraging that detachment. Why? Verse 35, he says, I say this for your benefit. How does that work? Even further, doesn't the general mindset that leads to this kind of thought really promote this sort of detachment? Again, verses 29 through 31, Paul is saying that we should have our hopes so firmly rooted in the return of Christ that it's as if we don't have any ambitions for this world anymore. Now, that may lessen our anxiety for this world, but doesn't that also lessen our concern for others? I mean, we do sympathize with Martha just a little bit, don't we? I mean, here she is serving. She's trying to be obedient by loving other people, and Jesus really kind of rebukes her, says that Mary's doing the better thing by simply being with him. How can that be? How can God say that we're supposed to serve people in this world on the one hand, and then say, let those who have wives live as though they had none on the other. You see my point? You've sometimes heard it said, don't be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. Well, here Paul says, no, be heavenly minded. Isn't that just going to encourage us to be detached from the world? Like you think of the monk, right, who pulls away from society and lives in a monastery in order to devote himself completely to the contemplation of Christ? Is Paul encouraging something like that in this passage? That kind of freedom from anxiety? How does this work? Or how about this question? Why not divorce? If the idea is that we should be seeking not just what's permissible, but what's profitable, and if being single has the potential to be free, you know, to, to free the Christian from these other anxieties, then why not just divorce? Here's one more question. If you haven't noticed this morning, I've been presenting this idea of dedication in terms of obedience. 
I've said that the reason why the Christian shouldn't change from one position to another is because the Christian is able to be obedient to Christ in either position. How does that overlap with this idea that we're not doing something for God, but that we're receiving from God? That the reason why Paul says you should change is not because of what it does for God, but because of what it does for you. I alluded to this question last week, and I said that while Paul is thinking in terms of profitable here, that this is not to the degree that absolutely no consideration for God's perspective is given here. There's a reason why he says don't divorce and even do get married in this passage. And it all has to do with what God finds pleasing and displeasing. I said that while there's this overarching concern for the Christian's satisfaction and joy running throughout this text, that it's still apparent that what God's what God finds pleasing and displeasing still comes first. How does that work? How do these two different priorities come together? These are the questions I want to try to answer for you with the time we have remaining as we look now at the second ambition that we find at work in this text. Again, we've said that a man's worth is no greater than the worth of his ambitions, that his ambitions drive his actions. Based on this, we saw that the first ambition... That the spiritually ambitious pursuit is, you know, is this idea that they seek to be free from anxieties. That was the first ambition that we saw in last week's message. The spiritually ambitious seek to be free from anxieties. The second ambition that we discover in this text is this. The spiritually ambitious seek to be a servant of all. Once again, the spiritually ambitious seek to be a servant of all. Meaning the way this kind of ambition is expressed, the way it is applied, is through this increasing desire to serve other people. You see this in verses 36 through 40, where after explaining that it's better for the betrothed to remain single, Paul says, if anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. There are, once again, some familiar elements to this passage. For example, Paul once again concludes that singleness is better in some sense than marriage. He says in verse 38 that the one who marries his betrothed does well, but the one who refrains from marriage will do even better. So there's this preference for the single status. And yet Paul is also careful to indicate that this is only a preference, not a command. Look at this. Three different times, Paul says that if a person chooses not to marry by their own volition, that they do well. He says, but whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. Paul wants to make this incredibly clear. This is a choice 
that a person makes, not a command. It's something that they choose to do, not something that they're required to do. Again, from God's perspective, it doesn't matter one way or the other. If they do it, they do it for their own benefit, not because singleness is inherently better before God. This is something that Paul has reiterated throughout this passage. What's different is what occurs in verse 36. And yet even still, in the end, this really isn't so different from what we've encountered so far either. Paul says, verse 36, If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. Again, there are some familiar ideas here. Once again, Paul is explaining that it's not a sin to marry. We've seen this throughout this chapter. What's interesting is what he says at the beginning of the verse. He offers two conditional statements, which then explain why the Christian would elect to marry. The first is, if anyone thinks he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, and and just so you know here, the word uh, technically is literally virgin in the Greek. It's actually the word that's translated as betrothed throughout this passage, all the way up to verse 25. And based on the fact that Paul speaks of his virgin here, uh, some think that Paul is speaking to Christian fathers, actually, who are wondering whether or not they should marry off their daughters. Um, Based on the context, I think it far more likely that he's referring to Christian men wondering whether or not they ought to marry their fiancés. The idea is that these men may want to remain single in light of what Paul is saying, but they think that by doing so, they're acting improperly toward their fiancé. In what way that might be the case, I think, comes out in the second condition. There, Paul says, and if his passions are strong, which is really not a very good translation, just so you know. It's literally, and if they are in bloom, the verb can be either masculine or feminine. If he or even if she is in bloom, it can be translated either way. Given that these are men who are considering refraining from all sexual activity, I think it's better to translate this as if she is in bloom. The man is acting improperly towards her because while committed to him previously, she has now reached the age of marriage and she doesn't share his convictions towards celibacy. Paul says, I think I said there were two conditions earlier. There's actually three. Paul says third condition, and if it must be so, meaning there's some sense of obligation here. Regardless of what the man may want in this this situation, there's a kind of obligation here. Paul says, and if it must be so, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. That's interesting because it shows us that while freedom from anxiety is a priority, it's not the ultimate priority. Again, there's something that overrides it. And what is that something? It's the concern of the other partner, right? So the man is thinking he would like to be single, but he still made this commitment to his fiancée to marry her. And assuming she was younger when this marriage was arranged, then in this culture, it perhaps means that the family has passed up other suitors based on this man's commitment. And she's now of the age to marry, and she still wants to get married. And what does Paul say then? He says, then marry her. 
Don't violate the commitment you made to her. Get married. It's no sin. Listen, Paul says, put her concerns first. Now, I say that's interesting, but it's really not so different from what we've already encountered, is it? Paul actually said the same thing to married couples back at the beginning of this chapter, right? There you have what appears to be wives who are wanting to refrain from any kind of sexual relationship with their husbands on the basis that it's better to be celibate than to be sexually active. Paul said this, the exact same thing there. He said, put the anxieties of your spouse first. Don't let them burn with passion. He even tells believing spouses, don't separate from your unbelieving partners unless they ask you. He says, put their concerns first. The only difference is that that discussion was based on the idea that such actions merited some kind of favor before God, that God preferred celibacy over sexuality. Here, Paul is casting it in light of what's better for the Christian. Paul is talking about the advantages that singleness affords the Christian and making their devotion to Christ easier. And he's saying, listen, while it may be better for you, just keep in mind that you don't put your anxieties first. First, you do what's pleasing to God, which in this instance means keeping your word. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 5. God's people keep their oaths. And then second, that means you prefer those you've made a commitment to. You put their anxieties first. Meaning if you've made an oath to marry someone and then have second thoughts because you want to be free from anxieties, if they say, but I don't share that conviction, I don't have that kind of gift, I'm burning with passion over here and you're asking me to just live with that. You don't say, well, tough, because this is better for me. You don't break off the commitment you've made, nor do you simply keep her as her bet your betrothed without following through. No, you follow through with your commitment. You put their anxieties first. And just so you know, I think this is why Paul repeats the command about divorce down here in verse 39. If you think about it, what he says here in verse 39 is no different than what he said up in verses 10 through 11. In both instances, he tells wives not to divorce their husbands. So why the repeat? Well, I think it's because he's looking at it from two different angles. Up in verses 10 through 11, he was framing it in light of what God preferred. And he was telling them, don't think that God is asking you to get divorced. That he wants you to get divorced because he doesn't. You're not obligated. You're not obligated to get divorced. Here he's framing it more in light of the benefit that the divorce could bring the Christian. And he's informing them that they're not permitted to get divorced. They are neither obligated to get a divorce from God's perspective, nor are they permitted to seek a divorce for their own sake in order to free themselves of the anxiety of marriage since they're obligated to put the anxieties of their spouse first. Overall, the main principle that we see emerge in this passage is that while the spiritually ambitious do seek to free themselves from their anxieties, at the same time, they still seek to be a servant to others. They seek to put the anxieties of others first. Now, you might wonder just how it is that this principle is compatible with the notion of being free from anxieties. I mean, if the principle up in verses 25 through 35 is that the Christian should avoid the anxieties that come with commitments to other people and that that's because it benefits the Christian, then how can he now indicate that the Christian should put others first 
and address their anxieties. That seems inconsistent. The one direction seems motivated by a concern for self, the other by a concern for others. And do you know what the answer is? The answer is that neither direction is motivated solely by a concern for self. They're both actually motivated by a concern for others as well. You have to understand, once again, where the anxiety in verses 25 to 35 is coming from. Again, it's not a general anxiety. Rather, it's an anxiety that stems from the Christian's desire to be both devoted and dedicated unto Christ. Like the idea is that they not only want to know Jesus, but that their love for Christ so overflows that they want to serve him, right? It's a get to, not a have to. And what makes that difficult for them are the commitments that bind them to other people. Like not only is the slave's desire sometimes split between this desire to serve their master on behalf of Christ and this desire to serve Christ, say, for instance, when their master commands them to disobey Christ. But even more than this, that bondage actually inhibits their ability to serve anyone but their master. The Apostle Paul, for instance, was able to become a missionary and work bivocationally on the mission field. And when you get into his reasons for this, it's clear it's always about the church. He seeks to serve Christ, and the way he seeks to serve Christ is by serving the church through his proclamation of the gospel. It wasn't to serve himself. He did it to serve others. Understand, he couldn't have done this as effectively if he had a wife and kids to take care of. Instead, his attention would be devoted primarily to them. So it's not as if he sought this freedom primarily for himself. No, as he says earlier in this chapter, he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman in the Lord. Likewise, he who has, uh, was uh, free when called is a bondservant of Christ. Again, people misunderstand this point. They think, they think, That freedom means the ability to serve themselves. Paul never frames it this way. Instead, freedom for Paul means the ability to serve others. Like he says in Galatians 5, 13 through 14, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Listen, Paul's exhortation to be free from anxieties was never about not serving other people. Rather, it was always about making the Christian's desire desire to be a servant to everyone easier. So there's nothing at all that's really incompatible in this. When Paul says, try to free yourself from anxieties, but if you have an obligation, then put the other person's anxieties first, he's not saying two different things. This is all just a logical extension of the Christian's ambition to serve other people. Can you start to see why we might need a a second week on this passage to really understand the nuance of this idea? I said last week that the unbeliever is going to have a hard time understanding a passage like this one, and that's because for the unbeliever, service is bondage, not the Christian. For us, service is something we want to do. The Spirit has so transformed us that we no longer wish to live only for ourselves. Instead, we love Christ. And we like to be like Him through the service we give to others. 
And so it's, it's not a source of anxiety for us to be asked to serve other people. Rather, what makes, makes us anxious is when we can't serve others, when we're restricted in our service to others. Again, do you understand there's a reason why Paul has to tell the Christian man here, it's okay to get married, you've not sinned. And by this point in the chapter, it's not because this man is concerned that sex is bad. Paul's already addressed that. Rather, it's because Paul has just told him that it's better to be free of these obligations that restrict his devotion to Christ. And so now Paul has to reassure him, this isn't disobedience to be devoted to just one person to this extreme. It may make things harder for you. It's going to complicate your desires, but it's not disobedience. Again, this is a man that wants to be celibate, who wants to stay single, presumably, again, just sort of in the flow of this argument, presumably because it frees him to serve Christ. And Paul has to say, it's okay to put your fiancé first. Listen, that's coming from a desire to be the best servant that one can be to others. Why is this kind of mindset the product of a spiritual ambition? Again, if a man's worth is only as great as the worth of his ambitions, then what is it about this kind of ambition that produces this particular result? I'd like to very briefly outline three reasons. That way, if you're struggling to adopt this kind of thinking, you might better understand what will get you there. Okay. The first reason is this. Because an eternal focus frees the Christian to serve other people. Once again, an eternal focus frees the Christian to serve other people. You go back to what Paul said up in verses 29 to 31. And it's evident that this mindset is driven by an eternal kind of perspective, right? He tells the Corinthians, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as if they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of the world is passing away. He says, live in light of the return of Christ. Why would that sort of mindset lead a person to keep their promise and obligate themselves to another person even when it's not to their own personal benefit, even when it makes their life more difficult? Well, one answer is because that mindset causes a person to not find their hope in this world such that they can give their life away in service to others. Again, that's what Paul means when he says, let those who have wives live as though they had none. He's not saying neglect your wife. He's saying even those who are married should not act as if that's their hope, as if that's the source of their contentment and joy. Same with rejoicing and mourning. Same with buying and selling. The Christian is not overly encouraged by his present condition in this world, nor are they overly discouraged by it because this world isn't their hope. And what this means is that they can give this life away to others freely and joyfully. Like I said last week, you go to the book of Philippians. And Paul is able to rejoice as he sits in jail for the gospel. He's able to go to the ends of the earth to share the gospel with others and then rejoice as he faces potential martyrdom over it. 
Why? We see it's because he holds this world loosely. To live as Christ for Paul, meaning he can serve Christ in that capacity. That's what he sees life as for. I can use this life to serve others and to die as gain, he says. This is what's so ironic about those who say, don't be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. It's actually the other way around. It's the heavenly mindedness that makes a person of some earthly good. I mean, Paul was most definitely a heavenly minded person. I think we've seen that over the past month and a half. I don't think you'd say that he was an unproductive Christian though, right? Now he was the kind of Christian you want to be. He was engaged with the world. He was sharing the gospel. He literally gives his own life for the salvation of others. And he does this all joyfully. Again, why? Because his hope is so firmly rooted in heaven. So if you believe this message, if you believe the gospel and you're thinking logically, then you'll want to serve other people. Because that's what the hope of this message produces. It frees a person to give this life away in service to others. Like we just saw a few weeks ago, it causes a person to see this life as an expendable resource. And the wise thing to do in that situation is to invest in something more permanent. And that's people, my friends. People are permanent. Not the other stuff in this world. Reason number two. The spiritually ambitious seek to be a servant of all because service is obedience. Again, service is obedience. Again, I think it's important that you understand why the Christian is anxious in this passage. This is why I'm taking two weeks on this text. Because although I said it last week, I think it's very easy to miss. This isn't a general anxiety that Paul is talking about in this text. It's an anxiety that's relieved by one's wholehearted devotion to Christ. Meaning, it's one driven by a concern for Christ. Once again, it comes from a person living in light of the return of Christ. What this means is that they're anxious about being obedient to him. Like what we saw recently from Paul in 2 Corinthians 5. They're conscious of the fact that they'll soon stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And that's not to say that they're living in fear of Christ. No, they, they want to be pleasing to him. Again, they like it. Not only is it the overflow of their heart, an expression of gratitude for their salvation, but they're anticipating the reward. What they dread is, is not being able to serve him. They're relieved when they can serve him. Well, what Paul is saying here is that marriage can be that. Keeping your oath, for instance, that's pleasing to God. Giving your life and service to another, that's pleasing to God. The slave who serves their master in order to serve Christ, remember they honor Christ in their service. It's the same with marriage. When you put the anxieties of your spouse before your own anxieties, when you even make your life more difficult to make their life easier, that's Christ-likeness. So if spiritual ambition means trying to be completely devoted to Christ, then there's nothing inconsistent with that and serving others. Quite the opposite. It's how that ambition will be expressed. The betrothed man will put the concerns of his fiancée first. The married woman will put the anxieties of her husband first. Reason number three. The spiritually ambitious seek to be a servant of all, because service is devotion. Again, service is devotion. 
And just to be clear, this reason is slightly different than the one I just gave. When I use the word devotion here, I'm not talking about the same thing as obedience. Instead, I'm talking about being a Mary. I'm talking about giving all of your attention to Christ so that you can enjoy and love him. And what I'm saying is that as strange as it may sound, service does contribute to that. That may sound counterintuitive given everything that Paul has just said about anxiety and wanting to be free from anxieties in order to be completely devoted to Christ, but think about it. Think about it. What happens when the betrothed in this passage realizes that he should give himself to his fiancée in spite of his own preferences? Where do you think that pushes him? Where does it push you every time you're called to put your own desires second? Where does it push you as a Christian? I would assume it pushes you to Christ, doesn't it? You have to check yourself. You're going, why am I living like this again? Why am I not putting myself first? And the answer is because that's the way Christ loved me. That's the way, as Paul says in Philippians 2, right? He says, count others more significant than yourselves. Why? Because that's the example that Christ has set for you. We were talking about this in Home Fellowship last week. Paul lived according to the principles he's describing here, right? He didn't think in terms of what was permissible, but what was profitable. Again, he doesn't think that God is inherently more pleased with self-denial, right? He believed that our job is to receive from God, not to give to God. And yet you look at his life and what did he do? He denied himself. Why did he do that? Well, because for Paul, self-denial wasn't actually self-denial. He received through his giving. There was profit in it. There was joy to be found in it. And what did he receive? Again, it wasn't any kind of earthly or worldly ambition. He looked to this great reward in heaven, which for Paul meant the ability to see and enjoy Jesus Christ. I mean, that's Philippians 3, right? He says he counts everything as loss in this world so that he might know Christ and the power of his resurrection. That's 2 Corinthians 4 as well, where Paul says that although his outer man is wasting away, his inner man is being renewed by this eternal weight of glory that's beyond comparison. Listen, it was Paul's desire to receive that fueled his passion to give. And that shouldn't surprise us. Because that's why Jesus gave too, didn't he? He put us first, according to Philippians 2. I mean, really, he put the Father first, according to that passage. But why did he do it? Hebrews 2.12 uh, 12, tells us. It says he did it because of the joy set before him. You understand that? Even Jesus was motivated by this joy that he would receive as he saw his Father's name glorified and as he saw his elect redeemed. Now, again, he's motivated by a different set of desires. He, again, he likes to honor his father. He loves his people. And so it's not a burden to give. It's a joy. And that joy, it fuels his service as well. Are you starting to see how this all comes together? I hope so, because this concept is going to be foundational for what we're going to cover moving forward. There's a sense in which this is kind of a transitional passage. Paul is building something here. He's building to an idea. He's building to this literary, literary climax where he's going to say in chapter 13, 
Do you want to know how maturity is really demonstrated? Do you want to know who is really great in God's eyes? It's those who love. Maturity is demonstrated in love. In the meantime, Paul is going to discuss what liberties look like in the church. He's going to discuss the roles that we're supposed to play in the church. He's going to try to heal this breach that's occurred through the Corinthians' pride. Do you know what the common theme is going to be as he addresses those issues? It's going to be love. It's going to be prefer others. Again, the Corinthians are trying to outdo one another by berating each other. You know, we'll see they're flaunting their wealth before each other at the Lord's table in chapter 11. They're boasting in their spiritual gifts in chapter 12. Paul is trying to tell them this is all a sign of your immaturity. Again, this is why you weren't ready for the wisdom I had to offer. You're still acting like little children. The spiritually mature, the spiritually ambitious, seek to outdo one another in love. I look forward to seeing what God is going to reveal to us over the the next several months as we move through these passages together. In the meantime, let's close out this particular section of 1 Corinthians by asking that God give us the spiritual maturity we need to receive this wisdom. Let's pray.